listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The Cardinal Health Countertalk Podcast in collaboration with Pharmacy Podcast Network is for independent pharmacists to learn about the state of the industry, innovative services and solutions, and the future of pharmacy. Join me, your host, Jason Calori, for conversations with pharmacists, Cardinal Health leaders, and industry experts sharing best practices, discussing industry trends, and showcasing Cardinal Health products and services. You can subscribe to the Cardinal Health Countertalk Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Counter Talk Podcast. First, a big shout out to everyone who attended RBC this year. It was great to be back in person, seeing old friends, making new ones, and enjoying a fun-filled week in Las Vegas. Now that we are all back home and have caught up on our missed sleep, it's time to dive back in. We have a great episode for you today. Those of you who attended RBC will remember the Counter Talk Theater, where you were able to listen in on sessions on a myriad of great topics from point-of-care testing and compliance packaging to retail and industry trends. Today, we are going to revisit one of our most popular sessions, the legislative and regulatory update. Let's listen in on the conversation with our partners at NCPA and members of the government relations team here at Cardinal Health. Thank you all for being here. Can you hear me okay? Great. I'm Rebecca McGrath, and I'm the Senior Vice President and Head of Government Relations for Cardinal Health. I am joined by a great panel today. We're gonna have a conversation about the progress that's been made on key issues that are of importance to you, to the pharmacy community. We're gonna touch on provider status, DAR fees, PBMs, and more. So first, a couple housekeeping matters. Please start thinking of your questions now. At the end, if we have time, we'll take them as a group, or otherwise the panelists will stand out in the lobby and be able to cover, cover them before they leave. We also uh, handed out a postcard. If you do not have one, please see the lady in the back in the white sweater. Um, we'll touch on it in a minute, but it covers one of our key advocacy asks. We'd love for your help of engaging with Congress. And next, and finally, I'd like to introduce our panel. So first, Doug, I'm gonna go to you for a brief intro. Uh, my name is Doug Hoy. I'm the CEO for the National Community Pharmacists Association. I'm a pharmacist and great to be here today. Great, and then Rana, over to you. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Rana Hauser. I'm the Senior Vice President of Policy and Pharmacy Affairs for NCPA, and I'm happy to be here today, and Doug is my boss. <laughs> Thanks, Rada. Scott, over to you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Scott Streeter. I head up uh, Managed Care uh, for our PSAO, as well as Business Development for Outcomes. I am well as a pharmacist as well. Um, I came from the managed care industry and PBMs, so I've only been with Cardinal for two years, so we'll share some um, interesting perspectives today. Great, thanks. And then Jerrica. Hi, everybody. I am Jerrica Mathis, also with Cardinal Health, uh, head of federal government relations. And Rebecca is my boss. Great, thank you. So now that we have that out of the way, we're going to dive right in. We know that these past two years have demonstrated more than ever how essential pharmacists are to protect patients, particularly in medically underserved and rural areas across the country. So Jerrica, coming to you first, this is a very timely question, breaking news. Uh, we are still in a COVID environment, and at this point, the public health emergency is going to end at some point. What's the latest you're hearing on timing, and what could the wind down period look like? So I promise I did not plan this in time for this session, but uh, about half an hour ago, I believe it was 4 o'clock Eastern time, 1 o'clock local time, the current public health emergency declaration that we're under was just renewed uh, for another 90 days. It was Otherwise, it would have expired today on July 15th. So we are now, uh, they're extended in 90 days since. 
Um, so we will be under another public health emergency through uh, October, middle of October. The Health and Human Services Secretary has indicated that he will give a 60-day notice before the public health emergency winds down. So if indeed the current declaration that just got renewed today is the last one, then we're looking to about mid-August to know when that wind down occurs. Um, as far as anything that's formally been announced by the administration, I'm not aware of if there's any plans on what that will look like. Um, so, it, you know, in terms of what we're speaking about today, uh, the services that pharmacists have been allowed to provide were extended under the PREP Act as it relates to the public health emergency. Um, and so once that public health emergency ends, those services go away, along with other things like, you know, Medicaid expansion, some telehealth services. So we'll be looking to the administration to see what that looks like. Great, thanks, Jerrica. And Rana, turning to you, can you talk about why this is important to pharmacists? What does this mean, um, and especially around vaccinations and therapeutics? Yeah, absolutely. And to Jerrica's point, uh, big news today with the extension of the public health emergency through October. And to follow up on Jerrica's point, we do have formal requests into HHS to provide further clarity on which pharmacist authorities may expire with the public health emergency versus which ones are in effect through October of 2024. So uh, stay tuned for more info. We know that HHS understands the importance of pharmacists in providing all of these services. So we do expect them to put out further clarity and make sure the pharmacy is protected to provide these services through at least October 2024. Um, however, you know, nothing's guaranteed after that point. So it's super important that in order for us to continue to provide vaccinations, monoclonal antibody treatments, tests, you know, that we do have more formal provider status moving forward and that Medicare recognizes us as formal providers and will pay us beyond a public health emergency. Definitely a priority. Thanks, Rana. Now, Jerrica, can you just touch on a little bit, how's Cardinal Health engaging around provider status legislation? Absolutely. So there is a bill, a federal bill, currently in Congress right now. It's in the United States House. It is H.R. 7213, the Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act. Hopefully yeah. I got that right. Um, that is, um, so what the bill would actually do is it would create a reimbursement mechanism under Medicare Part B uh, to allow pharmacists to get reimbursed to test for COVID, flu, RSV, and strep, uh, to treat COVID, flu, and, and strep, and then for vaccinations of, of COVID vaccinations and, and flu. Uh, the bill is bipartisan. It's got support on both sides of the aisle right now. Um, as it stands, I think we are about 34 bipartisan co-sponsors. Um, in the House, as far as how Cardinal Health is actually engaging more specifically, we have been meeting with federal lawmakers on this bill to ask for their support, to hope for it to advance. We are part of a coalition called the Future of Pharmacy Coalition to expand our voice. We're working with other stakeholders to gain support for the bill. Uh, we have held webinars. Um, all of these are publicly available on the Future of Pharmacy uh, website. You may see a couple of familiar faces if you actually go on that website and like check Jericho. them out. Um, exactly. We have sent letters to Capitol Hill in support. Um, pharmacists have sent letters of support. Patient advocates have sent letters of support. Different varieties, they're what we call third-party stakeholders. Um, so we're really hoping to use the momentum right now that Ron has already mentioned on how pharmacists have stepped up to the plate, provided all these services, honestly doing it before the COVID-19 pandemic, but, but heightened so, um, and hoping to advance this bill. 
Great, thanks, Erica. So, Doug, we know these are not new issues, um, but the pandemic and the PHE have certainly put a new lens on how um, they're being addressed. What are you hearing from pharmacists and your members at NCPA about these proposed activities in the states and also in Congress? And, and then we'll turn to, to Scott over here to talk about the payers. Well, just on the provider, provider. Yeah. in fact, just talking to some members, just as far as it's been a long, it's been a long haul. We've been talking about provider status for, I think 24 years is what, uh, 30 years here. Um, and it seems like, you know, or will it happen? And as I said on the stage earlier, it will happen eventually, but we shouldn't wait around for it to happen. And so you mentioned the states, Rebecca. And so there is movement in the states. It's uneven. So some states are more progressive than others as far as paying pharmacists and recognizing pharmacists. But there is movement in the states and I go back to a couple of things I said this morning, that if it's a public health need, and there's a lot of public health needs, um, you know, the point of care testing, you know, you, the list goes on and on. So there are opportunities uh, in states while progress is being made on the federal side. Great, now Scott, let's talk payers. What are you hearing from payers and health plans related to provider status? Yeah, so when we talk to payers, and Cardinal Health, we have over 50 different relationships with health plans and PBMs, and it's really interesting. When we, when we ask them, what do you want your pharmacy network to do, if you ask the PBM, it's going to be one answer, but if you go around and change the conversation and talk to the health plans, those who have the fiduciary risk, or even a self-assure employer, they're curious. A couple things. One. They may say, wait, pharmacists can do more? So there's an education opportunity. Um, those who are more informed, they go, wait a minute, don't they do just CMRs and medication therapy management? Yes, we do that. Cardinal does a lot of that. But we, they say well, they want more than that. I'll give an example. Just, just a conversation I had two weeks ago. One was uh, a health plan said, thank you, because you're doing 70% of COVID vaccines. There's no way, Doug, you mentioned this on stage earlier, primary care can't get to that. Mm -hmm. So a thank you for pharmacists. So this is catalyzing pharmacists as providers. So while we would love for um, Medicare to approve it, various states, I think 42 states, allow pharmacists to be providers in some way, shape, or form. In Ohio, where we're headquartered, we've had a conversation with the largest uh, Medicaid plan. They are saying, can you get me 150 pharmacists? So if you're in Ohio, come to me. I, th I think I saw one. Uh, I won't point them out. We need 150 pharmacists signed up by the end of the year that would be providers. They will bill and pay you for medical services. Cardinal Health is going to provide the platform and our Connect platform to do E&M, evaluation and management. This is new. It's going to take some training. But the payer is begging, can pharmacists do more? We want more diabetes care management. We want more asthma, um, uh, depression management. So the list goes on and on, but there's not enough providers. This is our opportunity. Rebecca, can I just add something Absolutely. there? So I think what helps make this message a little bit different too is the pandemic. So the message that Scott's talking about, that there's some payers out there who are willing to pay some. I mean, so some of you have heard a message similar to that before, I mean, if you've been practicing for a long time. But I think, Scott, what's the point that Scott makes that's, that's even different is there's more of those payers today because of the proof of concept that pharmacists have done during the pandemic. It's not, it's not theoretical, pharmacists can do this. It is pharmacists did it, 70% of all the vaccines. So payers are leaning forward more to listen. And I think part of the challenge for our member, for the independent pharmacists is scaling that. 
to get enough of these services to make it you know, worth, your, worth, worth your time to re reconfigure your store. But those opportunities, there's more of them, and I think they're bigger opportunities than what there were, say, pre-pandemic. Sure, it's more convenience. It's not as convenient going to your physician practice, and this is what employers and what health plans want. They want that convenient access to the second most educated profession after physicians is pharmacists. Maybe we're tied, I don't keep track anymore. We're smartest on medications. Just <laughs> Absolutely, and not utilized. Uh, you know, back to COVID, we're 56% of all flu vaccines now, mm -hmm. pharmacy. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that took over physician practices. This is also, so it didn't take just the uh, COVID, it didn't take just the public health emergency. Pharmacists have already risen to the occasion by doing other services. Yeah, that's great. And as Derica said, with the end of the public health emergency coming um, and all of this activity, the goal here is to use this momentum to make a difference in the future. And that's where we need you all and, and why we're here. And going back to those postcards that Ali handed out, um, that's one way that we're engaging with members of Congress on pharmacy's behalf. So if you don't have one, look for Ali over there. Uh, we'd love to be able to get your pharmacist name so we can deliver that to Congress and say, now's the time to make a move on provider status. So let's now turn to DIR fees. And Rana, coming over to you, this is another area there's been really significant developments this year. Um, could you talk a little bit about the recent rules that the Biden administration finalized, how the rule was received, and what do you think might happen next? Sure, happy to, Rebecca. So yes, big news earlier this year when CMS finally decided to do something about retroactive DIR fees, they put forward a rule that cost the government a lot. So that was a big step uh, the reason that we had always had trouble getting Congress to do anything to fix DIR was because of the price tag. So getting the Biden administration and getting this CMS administration and agency to take this step was a win. Uh, there will be no more DIR as we knew it in the past. Uh, it will change. Things will be accounted for upfront and more transparent and predictable. Now, it doesn't mean reimbursement will magically rise. It doesn't mean you know, that uh, pharmacies will be net uh, better, positive or negative. We don't know yet. A lot of things are up in the air, right? But what we do know is we should have better transparency and predictability. However, as we all know, there's a lot of things still left to be worked out. So good news is we got the government to do something to stop these games. PBMs are scrambling, right, to make up for where they've been able to profit in the past with DIR and hide the ball. So things are changing and the game is changing. Now a lot of work left to be done. Um, we just today implored CMS to address a lot of things that weren't addressed in that final rule to keep pharmacy robust and to keep uh, networks adequate. Because we are worried that if uh, you know, the PBMs cut too low, there's not gonna be adequate networks in Part D to serve patients. So we're, we're at a you know, really important time right now. The rule was delayed until 2024, but we know some plans and PBMs are looking to make the move for 2023. So stay tuned, I know Scott's in the thick of it. We talk to our friends at Cardinal all the time about this and we're just constantly trying to figure out where pharmacy is right now and where we need to go to protect our members and make sure our members can still provide services to their Part D patients. So more to come. Thanks, Rana. And, and you're right, this is a thing that we talk about all the time. We contributed to comments that NCPA submitted and Cardinal did as well. And just throughout the implementation, another place that we'll be continuing to engage. Um, Doug, we noticed that NCPA and APHA dropped the pending litigation um, in response to the final rule. Could you talk a little bit about what are you hearing from members and, and where do you think they're headed in response to the rule? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because there's been some confusion about the lawsuit that NCPA filed and APHA joined us. 
service on, um, so this lawsuit that we filed a year and a half ago was against um, HHS because they wouldn't take action on pharmacy DIR. We tried everything, we've gone legislative, we've gone regulatory, and so, I mean, litigation is expensive and slow, and that's the only reason why we hadn't done it sooner. But we had no, we felt like we had no choice. We, we filed it, APHA joined us um, a few months later. Um, so we wound up uh, temporarily putting a stay on it when the proposed rule came out in what, February? Early. Yeah, February of this year. And then when we got the final rule, what the lawsuit would have done is what the final rule did. So we could have kept it going, but it was, it would kept, keep the meter running and it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the final rule. So that's why we dropped the current lawsuit. Now, if we don't see some of the changes that we need, we'll do it again. We'll update the lawsuit, revise it, and have to file again. Again, they're expensive, they're crazy expensive, and they're slow. But if that's what it takes, that's what we're gonna do. I said a few years ago, we're not gonna stop until pharmacy DIR is gone. So that's the story on the lawsuit. It's, um, we achieved what we wanted. I think that lawsuit helped pressure CMS to, give, to, to, to get the final rule that we got. So, Doug, can I add on to DIR for a minute? Yeah. Well, we were happy to partner with you guys and, and send a letter right to, um, to CMS as well from our president, Debbie Weitzman, and all the work you guys did in government relations. So who's the winner in the DIR? The patient certainly is, and that's how Congress works. The loser is the P are the PBMs. That was a big, it's like rebates 20 years ago. They kept the rebates. Now they, now they pass it on. This has been a giant pool of opaqueness. We don't know how much money they're keeping, how much they're passing on to the plan sponsors. So PBMs are losing. Pharmacy, we think, you know, from a reimbursement standpoint, it might be even. But then the question is, the, the, the various incentive programs they had in with DIR, while they're not aligned very well, they were designed for adherence and other kinds of clinical and quality scores. So what we need to do as an industry, when we're negotiating with the payers, is now needs to be an upside potential. DIR was only a downside. And even CMS, the way they contract with health systems and accountable care organizations is upside and downside. You do well, you get more, don't less. DIR was only less. So I think it's an opportunity for us to lobby for a two-sided measurement. We agree with that too. I mean, quality measures need to be overhauled because the quality measures, come on, what they have now, right. I mean, that's really just, it's not, an, it's not outcomes oriented. Right. But we also think geo access needs to be updated. There's some other things. It's time for a tune-up with Medicare. <laughs> well said. Yeah. And I'll just add from our perspective at Cardinal Health, so, so separately we did also send a comment letter on the proposed rule to the administration in addition to the letter that Debbie Weitzman had said previously, previously to the proposed rule even coming out. And so obviously we'll work very closely aligned with NCPA on whatever those, now that we have a final rule, what those next steps are, since we still do have, I believe, a year before, or a year and some change, right, before 2024, before these changes go into effect. So we'll be working aligned to see what other steps we can take. Yeah, for sure. And while we're talking PBMs, why don't we stay on the subject? And Doug, turning to you, this was a really my big- my favorite topic. Uh, oh, we're getting, we're getting there, we're getting yeah. there. Um, FTC moved unanimously to do a comprehensive study of PBMs. This PDMs. is my favorite topic. Yeah, yeah. And I staved it so everybody would stay to hear what's going on here. Um, but what does this actually mean in application? So um, 
FTC has agreed to do what's called a 6B study. That was new to me. I hadn't heard that term before. We've definitely been going out to FTC for many, many years saying you've got to investigate PBMs. You've got to look into them. As I mentioned this morning, our members have said, how can they do this? How can PBMs be allowed to do this? How can they be allowed to you know, set the reimbursement uh, for my pharmacy, but then also compete against me? Um, as either a brick-and-mortar store or a mail-order store, 70% of all specialty pharmacy goes through three, you know, one of three specialty pharmacies. So the members have been saying that. The 6B study was granted or approved by the FTC in June, and it was a five-to-nothing vote. One thing that's interesting to look at is there were statements made by the commissioner. So there's five commissioners, five-to-nothing. Um, the three Democrat commissioners each issued a statement the two Republican uh, commissioners issued one statement. I, I'll go to those statements just to look for clues as to where their minds might be. The two Republican commissioners were more on um, consumer harm. Uh, they were very focused on consumer. I don't think they said the word pharmacy one time. The other three, I think two out of three mentioned pharmacy or independent pharmacies. One of them mentioned independent pharmacy. And the reason I bring that up is because this uh, study is going to take a long time. They typically take anywhere, a short one is 18 months, a long one could be several years. And during that time, there's going to be different commissioners because commissioners don't last forever. So it's all the more reason why we're going to have to continue to reach out to members of Congress to have them put pressure on FTC to make sure this study is done right. And the last thing I'll mention on this is there are seven things being studied by FTC that they named, and they're all things near and dear to our hearts things like unfair audits of independent pharmacies, specifically of independent. So those 24,000 comments that you helped send, they heard you. Also talks about affiliated pharmacy payments and unaffiliated pharmacy payments. So again, the, the, the discrepancy between what you're getting paid versus some of these PBM and their affiliated pharmacies, they heard that. So I just wanna applaud everyone who sent comments in, and again, echo what, you know, what I said this morning. Your comments do make a difference. Your advocacy does make a difference. We're a mouthpiece for you, but it's your voices that we're helping to amplify. So help us amplify your voice. Yeah, they want to hear from you, for sure. Rana, anything you want to add of what Congress is doing and how Congress might respond to what FTC's process looks like? Sure, to Doug's point, uh it works both ways, right? We need Congress to press on the agencies. We need agencies to press on the industry, uh, back and forth. So what's good right now that's also happening in the Senate is we have uh, Senator Cantwell and Senator Grassley who've introduced a PBM oversight and transparency bill that's actually already passed out of the Commerce Committee. So Commerce deals with more of the commercial space, so not our typical Finance Committee Part D type world. but more in the commercial space. This is very important. This would give heightened oversight of PBMs. It would give state attorneys generals more oversight opportunities to look into PBMs. It would make PBMs be more transparent, report more things, et cetera. So this is a very positive movement. Um, Senator Cantwell, Washington State, she's very uh, positive about the opportunity for this bill to move this year, so looking for as many co-sponsors as possible. So we have an all-out grassroots uh, push right now. Please get your senators to sign on to that bill. Um, it does have a chance, and uh, let's see where we can take it. And she's working with a House member right now to get a House version introduced. But a lot of uh, congressmen and women and senators are looking into this issue as well. And when you have folks like Senator Campbell and Senator Grassley joining forces, uh, people take notice and see that it's a big deal. Yeah. So it couldn't have been better timing for this bill to be introduced and passed out of committee than at the same time that the FTCs are making splashes about PBMs. 
Yeah, great, Rana. Thanks. And let's talk about the states for a minute. So in trying to make this interactive, we want to hear from you for a minute. Um, we're going to ask a poll question. And just go along with us here. How many states, and please raise your hand, considered PBM-related legislation this year? What do you think? How many people say three? How many people say 25? Oh. All right. And how many people think 43? You guys are paying attention. And the last, how many think all the states? All right, so 43 is the right number, which is pretty significant, actually. And Ali here over here is our director of state government relations. Um, she's been tracking all of these and monitoring. Next, we're going to talk about PBM operations and transparency. How many bills do you think were introduced on that subject? How many people think 100? How many people think one? How many people think over 500? And how many people think 394? <laughs> You're right. And with that, Rana, um, in all seriousness, there is a lot of activity here. Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing, what trends, um, and in your opinion, what states had the most significant, meaningful change to PBM law in the last year? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Rebecca. I had my little cheat sheet up here because I'd have thought you might ask us these questions. No, no, no. That's a 300 and almost 400 bills introduced this year to target PBMs. That's huge. And that's thanks to y'all's work at the state level. There's never a more important time to get involved at your state level and make things happen because that only makes our job easier in Washington, D.C. to get Congress to do something as well. So uh, trends we're seeing, they continue, uh, states continue to look into Medicaid managed care oversight, whether it's moving to a single PBM, moving Medicaid managed care pharmacy into the fee-for-service program. You know, there's different, uh, different tactics that different states are taking, but we like to see that because we like to see what's working better and like to model that in other states. Uh, states are taking a look at patient choice. Um, PBMs do not like that. That's one area where they get really, um, you know, in opposition to our efforts when it comes to bills, deal bills dealing with patient choice of pharmacy. Um, we're seeing a lot of movement in just PBM oversight in general, uh, making sure specialty is appropriately defined and dealt with. There's been a lot of good movement this year, and I can't continue to reiterate, reiterate get involved at your state level, make things happen, because that all bubbles up and Congress takes note. Yeah. So, Scott, over to you. What do you think is the biggest win that happened at the state level, and what are you seeing in the markets? Um, what's been successful there in addressing pharmacy reimbursement? I just think it's interesting here in this conversation, we're talking about two words, PBM reform. Three letters, one word. PBM reform. I've been around a while. I've seen this movie before. About 10, 15 years ago, what was the big word in D.C.? Healthcare reform. What changed? Affordable Care Act was passed, and some of the black eyes of health insurance companies were removed such as pre-existing conditions. You couldn't get insurance, or they would rate you too high, you wouldn't be able to get insurance. Um, mandatory coverage um, and um, medical loss ratio. There was a lot of changes that the insurance company kind of had a bad image on, so they, by law, had to change. I'm kind of curious, too, with this PBM reform crescendo that's happening, FTC, CMS, uh, might we see other changes that are lasting as well? For example, I brought my cheat sheet up as well. The, uh, the business group on health, they are a large coalition of employers, Dell, FedEx, Amex, Walmart, big employers who buy health care, they're self-insured employers. 
They were asked, and this, this is published, the employer view on PBM consolidation because of the large consolidation. 83% do not agree that PBM consolidation improves the quality of care. They're the customers. It gets, it gets further. Only 22% agree, agree that it improves the customer experience. So most, it doesn't improve, improve the member's experience. And, and, and here's what's even more telling. Only 43% agree it reduces cost of care. And so that's what their job is to do, is to help reduce cost of care. So I think when you think of PBM reform, it's actually happening in the markets as well. Um, so. Thanks, Scott. Doug, you want to follow on with anything? You want to jump in there? Oh, yeah. Um, no, those are great. I don't know if I've seen those stats. I'd seen an earlier study from the National Pharmaceutical Council, but I don't think I'd seen that from Business Group I'll on Health. With you. That's awesome. Um, so they need to fire their PBMs. Or PBMs need to change. And so the market can force it or Congress can force it. And so it's up to them. We'd love to partner with them if they make fair changes. Yeah. Well, and so I think that, and that's, that's when we're going to see the most change, is when the customers say, I've had enough. And, you know, big, whether it's a big employer or the federal government, who's the single biggest payer in the universe, they need to say enough on PBMs. Um, so I think that's another thing is, as you talk to legislators, is to say, why, you, why, do you, why do you keep rehiring the PBMs? It, you know, you're, you're now understanding that they're a problem, but why are you rehiring them? And just one last thing on this, speaking of the customer, the consumer, anytime you have a chance to turn on a, a, a patient, a consumer who is being disadvantaged by a PBM to a legislator, I mean, document that, write that down. Um, that's what the legislator cares about the most. They care about you as a small business owner, but they care about that constituent even more. And some of these, pre, like the pre-existing conditions in healthcare reform, that was consumers screaming about it saying, look, I've got a pre-existing condition, Actually, I've lost my job, changed my job, and now I can't get coverage. They're screaming to their legislators, we need more patients, consumers, screaming about PBMs, so it becomes deafening, and those legislators have no choice. So with everything you're hearing, I, what I take away is there is momentum. It's slow. It's certainly not as fast as we'd like as we talked yesterday on the show floor, but there is momentum. I want to ask a question to all the panelists, and Scott, I think I'll come to you first. What do you think the landscape's going to look like a year from now and five years from now? And then I'll just go down the line. Crystal ball, one year from yes, now? Yes, please. What do you see? Well, for, I would agree on the momentum. I, I, when you were talking this morning, Doug, I was uh, in the audience and hearing pharmacists around me just going, yes, that's right, yes, that's right, yes. And I've talked to a number of you as, as customers, and you're saying, over the years at RBC, we've heard Doug speak, and we're grateful for our government relations team, but like, this is really happening. Even last year, when we talked really about Arkansas with the SCOTUS Supreme Court case, now it's opening up lots of other states. So. Uh, I think a year from now, we're going to need to do DI implementation, as simple as that, and, and work on our contracts with payers to make sure that gets done right. Um, secondly, I would like to see more pharmacists as provider pilots. Um, we had a great one that was published in a managed care journal where 73 pharmacies in Iowa banded together, and they said, give us a chance to do chronic care management. Give us $4 per member per month. So if you had 100 patients come in, you got 400 bucks and you take care of them for asthma, diabetic, diabetes, cardiovascular depression. They reduced total cost of care 4.5%. That was published in a managed care journal. So I, I would love to see us a year from now and even five years from now be in the conversation of value-based care. 
be in the um, center of population health, pharmacy-driven population health, and we're going to need more proof that pharmacists can improve patient um, this quality of care, reduce total cost of care, and provide that patient engagement experience. Jerrica? Yeah, I totally agree with everything Scott said. I think, you know, I think if some of these changes are made permanent, I think you also see, you know, looking five years from now, just a change across the overall profession, right? How pharmacists who are not even pharmacists now, maybe in pharmacy school or thinking about going to pharmacy school, you know, what access and opportunities that they'll have once they come out of school in this new um, landscape that will exist. Um, I think to Scott's point of, and then looking beyond the profession, you know, overall as a country, how we are improving health outcomes, reducing health disparities, promoting health equity, access to care, all of these great things that we have been talking about for all of these years, but taking these incremental steps to actually um, accomplish. So I think I'm positive about the outlook now. You're right, I mean, healthcare reform was not a new topic either. People have been working on that for 30 years, but it took that, that groundswell of grassroots efforts and that momentum to pass that, that landmark legislation. I think we're kind of on that same momentum now. The last thing I'll add is that looking at, you know, scope of practice and so many different areas you can practice within pharmacy. And your U.S. federal government, there are only two pharmacists in Congress right now. Um, and I think that, you know, they, you know, it's kind of on them to do a lot of like the heavy lifting yeah. to educate their colleagues within the government. There's more opportunity there for more pharmacists to become involved that way too. So I'll just make that. Yeah, I love that reference to the future of pharmacy with the young pharmacists coming in the profession and making it better going forward for those that come next. That's great. Doug, over to you. So I've got a program at 3.30 about five trends affecting the future of pharmacy. Oh, right. <laughs> plug. For a commercial oh, yeah. <laughs> Come by and see it and say hello. No. Um, tip your waiter, enjoy the lamb. Um, for uh, the future, and I don't want to Medicare reform because that may be something that my colleague goes into, I would say um, making it easier to work with independents. So as Scott said and as Jerrica added as well, we're, we, we are changing the, the Practice of pharmacy is changing. We've been saying that for years, and it, you know, it feels so slow. But if you actually held up a picture from whether it's 24 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 and held it up to today, it really is a different picture of how pharmacy is progressing, just the things we're able to do as pharmacists. So I think that's going to continue, but it's going to happen faster. And I think we're going to have conversations. Like when you're talking to another pharmacy owner and you're asking about your business, within three minutes, you're going to say, how many prescriptions do you fill? Oh, I do about 200 a day. Oh, I do about 500 a day. Wow, you do 800 a day. You're really a busy pharmacy. That's going to change. We'll still talk about that, but we may say, how many immunizations do you do? How many point-of-care tests do you do? That's already started because we're going to be able to get more service revenue to add to the pharmacy, so it's not going to be solely de as, as dependent on the dispensing side. And Rana? Yeah, I just love how everything that's happening legally and legislatively and via regulation at the state and federal levels are melding together. So Scott referenced the Supreme Court, the SCOTUS Arkansas case, had a win there, had a win in North Dakota that we just found out this week is unchallenged by PCMA. So it's over. Yay! So North Dakota is done. The PBMs aren't challenging anymore, so they can implement their law fully. Um, we still have a little fight left in Oklahoma. We'll always have these fights. A good bill will get passed, the PBMs will sue. But we're going to keep fighting it until the, until the bitter end. And what's exciting to me is what some of these states and these courts are bearing out is that states can now regulate some areas of Medicare Part D. 
which is a really new world and something to get really, I think, excited about. So you have some state activity on Part D. We're trying to make some national reforms on Part D. Just one example. You have a lot of state activity trying to move to a more transparent NADAC-related acquisition-based benchmark. We have federal efforts to try to get our federal government to say Medicaid-managed care has to totally move to a NADAC-based uh, reimbursement benchmark plus a commensurate professional dispensing fee for pharmacy. So everything's starting to meld together from all the hard work at the states, at the courts, and with the hard work we do every day in Washington, D.C. So that's very exciting for me, and I think that's only going to continue to play out in the future. Yeah. And Jerrica, you mentioned there's just a couple of pharmacists in Congress, like Buddy Carter, who we all work with quite a bit. Um, can you touch on the election and what do you yeah. what do you think will happen in November? I know crystal ball, um, but also how might it impact some of the conversations we're having? Exactly. And Buddy Carter from the great state of Georgia. I also happen to be from there, not that I'm biased at all. Um, but you know, what, what happens is, um, you know, when your legislators change, your health care priorities will change, right? That overall landscape of what they're going to focus on at the federal level will change. And then obviously the White House will not change um, with this particular election. But I think the good news is all of the issues that we're talking about today, for the most part, are pretty bipartisan. Yeah, so, right. um, so a stalemate, you know, Congress, you know, Dem and Republican, hopefully would not change that. So hopefully that unifying messaging and coming together and working in that bipartisan spirit, at least particularly on these particular issues, hopefully will not change at, after this election. Ronnie, you want to talk state for a minute? What do you think is going to happen there and how it might impact these pharmacy issues? Oh gosh, there's always toss-up races at the state level, right? Here's an interesting fact, and I want to say this because this is why I brought my paper up here. <laughs> this is super interesting. Okay, 88 of the country's 99 state legislative chambers will hold regularly scheduled elections. That's huge. So I mean, so much is up for stake. So go vote, make your voice heard. Whoever gets in these chambers is gonna impact your profession in the future. So it's super important in this election year to make your voice heard. Um, fight for who's fighting for you, you know, in your local communities and as a small business owner. We have a lot of momentum, a lot of momentum fighting PBMs and getting fair and transparent pharmacy reimbursement and getting patients the pharmacy of their choice tons of momentum in all of those important spaces. And I think we'll just continue to grow on those into this next legislative session. Can so I, all the way down the ballot, yeah. all the way down. All the way down. Just ask those legislators where they are on pharmacy. You know, yeah. between now and November, they're gonna be back in the district, they're gonna be maybe in your hometown campaigning. Go to an event, go to their office, schedule a time, ask them where they are on pharmacy. It's like you all knew what my last question was going to be. Oh, I'm sorry. No, oh, that's perfect. It's a great start because we can talk more about this. So go vote, we've heard. We've heard meet with your legislators. We've heard ask them where they are in pharmacy. What more can the entire pharmacy community do to engage? And, and part of that is it's not just, as Ron, I think, said, they like to hear from us. They really like to hear from you. Um, maybe, Ron, I come back to you. What else can, can pharmacists do to engage on these issues with their legislators? Get them into your stores. You can never have too many pharmacy visits. Even if you just did one, do another one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're home, you know. August is their break, so get them into your pharmacies. You know, just beg their local uh, staffers. Say, hey, have XYZ get into my store. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll make the time and effort to do it. It's so important to get these members into your store. And, uh, you know, we feel it's important, obviously, for your federal members to come into your store. We prefer that, but get your state guys in there, too. Get any elected official in your pharmacy so they understand what you're going through every day. Super and NCPA, NCPA can help with that, right? In August, Doug, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in August, we have our advocacy month. This, normally, we have a fly-in where we ask pharmacists to come into DC. We've been doing that since 1968. 
This year, because of COVID and because of the Capitol being shut down for other reasons, um, we didn't have the fly-in. Uh, but instead, we're having a month of advocacy in August where these legislators are going to be back in the, the home district because they're on recess. And that's going to be your chance to have them get, get behind the counter, show them how the magic happens. And it, even better if you have a patient consumer that can say, we love our pharmacists. I mean, not contrive too much because even a politician can see through that. But have someone there just uh, behind the counter, bring, bring them in your pharmacy. And we can help with that, right, Jerrica? And yeah. help and set up tours? Yep. Anything else you want to add? No, nope. I was just going to echo that and say that we can help set up tours as well. We've actually been doing that. Obviously, a little slower, as Doug has already mentioned, with COVID. But people are coming out a little bit more. And they're actually eager to get engaged. Uh, Rebecca has already mentioned the lovely postcards. If you don't have one, please raise your hand. And our colleague, Allie, will get one to you. But while, they are, while you're giving your pharmacy tours in person in August, we are going to hang back in DC and actually deliver these postcards to your members of Congress to continue to build that support. Because just because they're away from the district doesn't mean the work actually stops for, for August. So we will continue to, to keep that momentum up. And then when they come back in fall, continue to do our work um, in government affairs to advance um, these bills and, and proposals that we've talked about. It's also a really great time to let you all know that we both have booths here downstairs. So when you're done with this session, and Doug's session, I don't want to eat like that as well, please come visit us um, on the exhibit floor, uh, the government affair. We have additional resources if you're interested to check them out on how you can share your story with your member of Congress. We are located right next to NCPA's um, booth. and have some contact information for you all to stay in touch with us beyond just RBC on how you can stay engaged for the rest of this. If season. you have to choose between the two, go to the booths. <laughs> go to the booths. I'll catch you up. Yeah. Go to the their booths booth has first. <laughs> uh, Scott, over to you. What do you want to add around pharmacist engagement and advocacy? Well, I, I, what legislators want to hear are really clear examples because they're going to get flooded with the confusing opaqueness of pharmacy reimbursement come from PBMs. And PBMs will hide and say, we're trying to save money for the employers. They are, but not on our backs. So just have some clear examples. Um, I, so I think that helps. I think even, even some recommendations as well, not just complaints. Patient stories are, are beautiful as well. And, and, and also I just want to say, what's happening at Department of Medicaid's across the country there is a groundswell of new reimbursement happening there. Hospitals don't really get paid well for Medicaid, but ironically, in the pharmacy space, because they've heard the complaints about PBMs, now it's a NADAC plus model in many states. West Virginia was, was a recent one. Ohio, I think New York's looking at it. It keeps going on. So whether you're getting your 40, 50 cents on a Medicaid script is going to be a NADAC, gets your reimbursement plus. That's a good example to share with the legislator. Why, why couldn't we do that for commercial? business as well. Great. Thanks, Scott. And thank you so much to all the panelists, in particular NCPA. We really value our partnership with you. And, and as you've heard, we work with you on an almost daily, yes. maybe too frequently basis, yes. uh, to work through some of these policy issues. So thank you so much for being with us. And, um, and really a big thank you to all of you, both for attending our session, including some of those that visit us yesterday at the advocacy booth, and then I showed up today. We really appreciate it. But we, more than anything, appreciate what you're doing in your communities, not just the last two years in terms of COVID, but all you do every day. And we're very proud 
proud on behalf of Cardinal Health to support you and work with you um, and advocate for and with you. So as Jerrica mentioned, stop by, visit the advocacy booth, um, meet with Allie or Jerrica, hear more about what we're doing and stay in touch with us. Let us know what we can do to support you in your communities. Um, and if you have not turned in your postcards, you have one more chance with Allie over there. So members want to hear from you and we're here to partner with you to make that happen. So huge thank you. Thank you for being here today and for everything that you do. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.